all of us have had times where you seem to sort of have the world by the tail and things are really clicking. Maybe you didn't exactly hit the jackpot, but life is pretty good. Maybe you're there right now. Today, I want to warn you to be on your guard in such moments. Gideon's great success in leading 300 troops to an underdog victory over 135,000 Midianites, 450 to 1 odds, but it proved to be his undoing. Be on your guard after a great victory. The temptations that led Gideon downhill could do the same for you. Welcome to the Heartland Free Sermon Podcast. We're so happy to have you. If you're a first-time listener and you'd like to get to know more about us as a church, click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to fill out our online connection card, you can do that there as well. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into a fantastic message. Alex Rodriguez was uh, the best player in Major League Baseball for a 12-year stretch. From 1996 to 07, he was the youngest player to ever hit five home, 500 home runs. He looked like a cinch to break the all-time home run record until he signed the largest ever contract in American sports at the time. A 10-year, $275 million contract with the New York Yankees. And you know what? From there was all downhill. Yeah. In, 19, in uh, 2009, uh, he admitted using performance-enhancing drugs. 2012, he was benched during the playoffs due to poor performance. 2014, he was suspended an entire year. 2016, his 22-year career fizzled out. The lesson for us, folks, is be wary of the dangers of success. Success can be very intoxicating. It can give us that illusion of control. It, it can cause us to find meaning in that which has no eternal value. It can leave us feeling proud and superior to others. You see this happening over and over again in the Bible. It was after a great military victory over the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. After that, King Saul directly disobeyed God, and the Bible informs us that the Spirit of the Lord departed from King Saul. And it ended up being permanent. In like manner, King David was also, he was at the pinnacle of his power when he fell into sin with Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11. And it was David's son Solomon who penned the words of Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Nevertheless, Solomon proceeded, proceeded to acquire a harem of a thousand wives and concubines who promptly led him away from the God of Israel. The kings of Israel never seemed to learn this lesson. It was after military victories on every front that King Uzziah lashed out at a group of priests who confronted him with his sin. 
Second Chronicles 26.19 tells us he started to break out with leprosy at the very moment he was yelling at them. And he had leprosy the rest of his life. Is it any different today? Many have sacrificed everything to acquire fame and fortune only to see it destroy them. Have you ever wondered if there are any celebrities out there who are truly happy? Amazon's Jeff Bezos went through a divorce, cost him $38 billion. Melinda Gates may have gotten twice that amount when she split up with Bill. And then there's Tom Brady. Do you think he wishes he would have called it quits a season earlier? Retain the respect of his wife and kids to whom he made promises. Still has his Super Bowl rings, but his personal life is in shambles. And you know, women aren't immune from the temptations of fame and fortune either. Oprah Winfrey was raised in a poor Baptist home, but she heard about Jesus. Today she's a billionaire but her soul is far from the God that she learned about as a child. The same is true of Anna Nicole Smith, Pamela Anderson, a host of other female celebrities. Too much success, too early in life, creates enticements that very few can resist. <clears throat> Justin Bieber can tell you all about that. And so can Mike Tyson and O.J. Simpson and Michael Jackson, if he could speak from the grave. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, Pastor Denny, this certainly doesn't apply to me because no one could ever mistake me for a celebrity. And that may be true. But all of us have had seasons of success. All of us have had times where you seem to sort of have the world by the tail, and things are really clicking. Maybe you didn't exactly hit the jackpot, but life is pretty good. Maybe you're there right now. Today I want to warn you to be on your guard in such moments. Gideon's great success in leading 300 troops to an underdog victory over 135,000 Midianites 450 to 1 odds, but it proved to be his undoing. Be on your guard after a great victory. The temptations that led Gideon downhill could do the same for you. Beware of the four temptations that we see in Judges chapter 8. First, beware of jealousy. Others will envy you if you have a season of success. And you know what? You'll envy others who have had even greater success. Verse 1 says, Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us up when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. You know what happened here? The Ephraimites were feeling left out. They were one of the most powerful tribes in Israel, 
and they missed out on Gideon's greatest triumph. Only later were they asked to block the retreat of the fleeing Midianites. And it sort of felt like small potatoes to them, you know, a minor role. Now, it's important for us to realize at this point that victory was not inevitable. According to verse 10, the Midianites still had 15,000 troops left. They were down, but by no means out. And yet it was at this time that the green-eyed monster of jealousy had a way of rearing its ugly head. Have you ever noticed that? Sort of like your favorite football team being ahead by three touchdowns going into the fourth quarter. But your star running back hasn't scored yet. And he's mad. Because others are getting all the attention. Did you know it was Shakespeare who first called jealousy a green-eyed monster in Othello, he writes, Oh, beware, my lord of jealousy. It is a green-eyed monster. Someone else is getting all the glory. Even though your team is winning, your star running back, he's over there pouting. That's what the Ephraimites were doing. They were used to being the starters, not the subs. But now, benchwarmer Gideon, he, he's stealing the spotlight, and they didn't like it. Ever been guilty of that? Your best friend, your sibling, your next-door neighbor, they have a big success, and you have a hard time celebrating with them because, you know, you're, you're thinking about yourself. You know what? God knew this would be a stumbling block for all of us. That's why the last of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Who of us doesn't struggle with this? When my neighbor sails by on his brand new pontoon, yeah, it's hard. You know, I hope I'm casting a wishful eye, not a covetous eye. When I was younger, the temptations were different. My, one of my roommates in college competed in decathlons. The guy was a natural athlete. He was smart, handsome, charming. You know the type, the girls buzzing around him like bees. So sickening. <laughs> Why does th some things, just, it just comes so easy for some people. Now, Here's what you must remember. Success brings a, a whole nother set of temptations. You know what? The bigger the success, the greater the temptation. When I first started in ministry, one of my pastor friends graduated the same time I do, got out in his church, took off like a rocket. 
His church exploded with growth and vitality. Everything he touched turned to gold. And then he fell into sexual immorality and promptly lost everything, including the respect of his wife and his kids. I love Gideon's reply in verse 2. What have I accomplished compared to you, Ephraim? Gideon is magnanimous in victory. He's big-hearted. He's deferential. He's willing to share the glory. Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezar? Abiezar was his tribe. God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands, Ephraim. What was I able to do compared to that? At this, the Bible says, their resentment against him subsided. You know what the Bible says? It says, a soft answer turns away wrath. When someone lashes out at you, oh, it's oh so easy to lash back, isn't it? But Gideon didn't do that. He took the high road. He reminded Ephraim of their key role in the victory. He basically said, I couldn't have done it without you. Which is true. No person is an island. Michael Jordan may have been the greatest basketball player of all time, but he could not possibly have been successful without Scottie Pippen and his other teammates. Basketball's a team sport. And so is warfare. And so is life. You need others, and so do I. Notice also that Gideon reminded Ephraim that God gave the Midian leaders into their hands. Verse 3 says that God did it. At this point, Gideon is still very much aware that the ultimate glory goes to God. Neither he nor the Ephraimites could do anything on their own. It was God who gave the victory. But you know what? This is oh so easy to forget, isn't it? If a windfall of money falls into your hands, it's easy to sort of pat yourself on the back, to congratulate yourself on your own cleverness. When you win an award, when you get a promotion, when you pay off your mortgage, when you make a great business deal, when you graduate from college, remember that it is God who gave you the victory. When I was in the depths of deep depression in the mid-1990s, one of my biggest battles was with insomnia. At the worst, I was down to maybe an hour of sleep a night. But God taught me a lesson. I've never forgotten it. It's simply this, that I cannot do something even so simple as falling asleep apart from the grace of God. And to this day, I never take good rest for granted because it's a gift from a gracious and good God, and I am thankful. 
In verses 2 and 3, Gideon displays humility. He displays gratefulness to God. He displays respect and appreciation to the Ephraimites. And you see, that's how you deal with jealousy. Here, Gideon is a good role model for us. We need to learn from him. So let's move to the second temptation Gideon faced. Beware of anger. You see, when everything is going your way, it's oh so easy to lash out at those who are holding up progress. You ever had that experience? Verse 4 says, Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan River, crossed it, said to the men of Succoth, give my troops some bread. They are worn out, and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. In response, the leaders of Succoth flat out refused him. So he moves on to the town of Peniel, and they too, they refuse him. But this time, Gideon doesn't deal with them as he did with Ephraim. This time, he shows no mercy. Instead, he vows vengeance on them. To Succoth, he says, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. To Peniel, he says, I'm going to tear down this mountain, this tower of yours. This situation begs the question, is Gideon sinning here? And I want you to know that Bible scholars are divided right down the middle on this. Warren Wiersbe, David Jeremiah, John MacArthur, they all say no. Uh, they, they give Gideon the benefit of the doubt that he's God's appointed leader. His people are defying him. He must deal with them decisively. Discipline is necessary. But on the other hand, Tim Keller, Professor Lawson Younger, the ESV Study Bible, they say yes. They maintain that Gideon is he's starting to drift away from God. He is unnecessarily harsh against Succoth and Peniel. And he's motivated by revenge against the Midianite kings because they went after his brothers. Now, I tend to side with those who give Gideon the benefit of the doubt. Verse 4 tells us that he and his men, they were exhausted. Verse 5, they make a reasonable request of their fellow Israelites, and they are unwilling to take a stand. They're still not quite sure, you know, if the Midianites may pull this out, and then they'll come back and they'll clobber us. So they're unwilling to take a stand, unwilling to assist their brothers at a time of need. And that is far, far different than Ephraim's battle with jealousy. In this case, Succoth and Peniel needed to be disciplined. Gideon's response seems reasonable to me. But you know what, folks? We've got to be very, very careful here. Because anger is a very tricky emotion. King David wrestled with his anger. He describes this struggle in Psalm 4. He says, in your anger, do not sin. 
When you are on your beds, search your hearts. Be silent. The Hebrew word for anger is ragaz, meaning to be disturbed or agitated. It is possible to be angry and not sin. But you know what? It isn't easy. What David describes here is what I would call a controlled anger. (laughs) Brings back memories when I was disobedient as a child. and Both my mom and dad would give me spankings. My dad would, he had a real problem with being what he called a smart aleck. I don't know if that phrase is even used today. I remember thinking, boy, that Alec, he must have been one tough character. You know? My mom, she would get upset when I was sassy. That was a bad, bad, bad thing. I didn't tell my mom when she got older that my wife got her hair done at sassy's. You know? I mean, today, the word sassy, it it can be positively, it can be used of someone who is spunky and a little spirited, or it can be used negatively, describe someone who is disrespectful and rude. For my mother, being sassy was bad, bad, bad. I remember her being angry, but I remember that it was a controlled anger. And you see, that's what's pleasing to God. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26, in your anger, do not sin. And then he says this, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. You see, that's what, that's what happens. If you seethe in anger and you sleep on your anger, and then if you keep holding on to it, that's that foothold becomes a stronghold, doesn't it? The Greek word for anger is orgizo. It means a fixed anger, a settled opposition, an anger that's inspired by God, to be angry about that which angers God. That's pleasing to him. It's called righteous anger. But the key is don't stay there. By nightfall, The Bible instructs us, you got to get rid of it. Don't take your anger to bed with you. (laughs) It's one of the reasons why Sue and I pray. That's we we pray every night. And uh, we've done that throughout our marriage. The last thing we do is to pray. And uh, this this helps. I, I know it's helped both of us. If there were any issues earlier in the day to resolve that, And um, ask God to give us a good night's sleep. Ask God to reign over any differences among us. And make forgiveness. Ask forgiveness where that's necessary. Now, I don't know about you, but I have to limit how much I watch the news. Because it makes me angry. Okay? Okay? 
So I, I read the Star Tribune in the morning, 15 minutes or so, get the left side of stuff, watch uh, about 15 minutes of Fox News at night, get the right side of stuff. And, uh, but I tell you, I have to limit myself because I found out something. If it's anything more than that, I start getting angry. Oh, it's liberals. Well, it churns inside. Heartland family, beware of anger. If you're like me, it can easily trip you up. Be on your guard. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now let's move to the third temptation Gideon faced, which is pride. Beware of pride. The Israelites came to Gideon in verse 22. They said, rule over us, Gideon. You're our hero, you and your son and your grandson, because you saved us out of the hand of Midian. And wisely, Gideon declines their request. Verse 23, he says, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Unfortunately, right after Gideon says this, he proceeds to act like a king from here on out. Verse 24, he sounds like he's asking for a minor favor. Would each of you, you know, mind giving me an earring, just one little old earring? Well, folks, if you get 100,000 of those, it adds up, right? You know, verse 25 tells us that Gideon became a wealthy man. The weight of all those gold earrings came to 43 pounds. And besides that, they gave him ornaments and pendants and garments and chains, and he became a very rich man. And you know what? It corrupted him. And then Gideon made an ephod. In and of itself, an ephod is not evil. It's essentially a vest adorned with jewels and precious stones. It was worn by the high priest in the tabernacle where God is worshipped. The ephod was symbolic of the presence of the Lord, and it was used to discern his guidance. Now Gideon's sin was placing this ephod in his hometown. So his hometown became a rival place of worship. You see, Shiloh was where the tabernacle was located, according to Judges 18.31. But now Gideon was having them come to his hometown, which was Ophrah. And he basically assumes the role of high priest himself, which he was forbidden to do. Verse 27 tells us what happened. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. The ephod became an idol to them. And once Gideon died, it was all too easy for the Israelites to switch their allegiance from the ephod to the Baals. The bottom line is Gideon's wealth created a set of temptations that led to his undoing. You know, if anger is difficult to navigate, wealth is ten times more difficult. Jesus said so 
in Matthew 19, 24, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Can a camel go through the eye of a needle? No way. Now, thanks goodness, this was a figure of speech, sort of like we make today. And Jesus was pointing out here that it is very, very difficult for a wealthy person to make it to heaven. Why? Because wealth creates temptations that the average person doesn't face. And most people succumb to those temptations. When I was a kid, I loved Michael Landon. <laughs> I loved Bonanza. I loved the Little House on the Prairie. And then later, Highway to Heaven. And I thought, man, this guy's so genuine. He's, he's so nice. He's, he's, he's so different. He's just got to be a Christian. And I remember how sad it was to learn that his home life was just constantly in turmoil. And he went through three wives and nine kids and constant tension in his homes. You know what, folks? The good news is it doesn't need to be that way. It really doesn't. Matthew 19, 26, Jesus said of the rich making it to heaven, he said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You see, while wealth creates more temptations, it also creates more opportunities to spread the gospel. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, can be gone tomorrow, but to put their hope in God. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, to be willing to share. Gideon didn't do that. He fell to the temptation of pride. And that brings us to the fourth temptation that Gideon faced. Beware of sexual immorality. Verse 30 says, Gideon had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Now the Bible is clear, absolutely clear, that you're only to take one spouse. Genesis 2.24 says, A man, singular, will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, singular, and the two will become one flesh. The Bible is also clear that you are to be sexually pure, you're to both be virgins until your wedding day. Hebrews 13.4 says, marriage should be honored by all. The marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now it's abundantly clear, Gideon didn't keep that teaching. Scholars estimate Gideon had somewhere between 14 and 30 wives. And even that wasn't enough to satisfy his lust. 
For he takes a concubine and he has a son with her named Abimelech. Now next week, we're going to look at what happened. And let me just give you a little teaser here. Gideon's son with the concubine, Abimelech, ends up killing 69 of his 70 brothers. Okay? Can you imagine that? Talk about God's judgment falling on Gideon's family. Immorality pays a high price tag. In fact, right now, the United States of America is paying an incredible price tag for violating sexual boundaries. God gave us sexual boundaries because he loves us. And when we, we break those bounds, when we just plow through those boundaries, it always brings trouble to us. Today I want to challenge all of our youth, all of our singles, all of us, but especially our youth and singles, keep the marriage bed pure. Now maybe you're thinking, well, he won't go out with me unless I sleep with him. And I want to say to you, congratulations, because God has just showed you that that man isn't for you. Because you will never be one flesh with that man. Because if that is his attitude, you're only going to be one of many lovers that he has. I close with this. Gideon didn't have to go out on a sour note. He does, but he didn't have to. He could have humbled himself like David did. You see, the best decision King David ever made was a major course correction in his life that is recorded for us in Psalm 51. As you may know, David had blown it big time. He sees Bathsheba bathing from his palace perch and he wants her. So he takes her, he makes love to her, he kills her husband and he takes her as his wife. No one says a word. No, you didn't do that in those days. <laughs> or you usually lost your head. But the Bible says God was displeased. And David, meanwhile, inside, he was so full of guilt that the Bible says his very bones were aching, but he still refused to repent. So God sends a prophet to him, Nathan, to have a little talk with David. And Nathan begins by telling David a story. And it's a story about a rich man with many sheep and a poor man who, who only has one little lamb. And a traveler comes to town and the rich man has him over for a meal. And the rich man fixes the meal with a sheep or instead of the rich man fixing the meal with a sheep from his flock, he goes and he takes the poor man's little lamb and he feeds his guest. 
Now that's all the further that Nathan got with his story because David exploded with anger. He wanted to kill the rich man. And he hadn't any more than got his words, those words out of his mouth when Nathan shocked David by saying, you're the man. This is what you did when you took a poor man's wife and then had him killed. You are the man, David. Now, no one talks to a king like that in the ancient world, but to his credit, David accepted the reproof and he ended up fasting and praying and weeping before God. And Psalm 51 tells us what happened. David pleads with God. David says, wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Have you ever had that experience? You know, I mean, you close your eyes, you just can't get away from it. David says, against you, Lord, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, of course, he sinned against Bathsheba and against her husband also. But the first one he offended was a holy God. David ended up getting right with God. Later he said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, that's what Gideon needed. And oh, how the end of his life may have turned out so much different. Today, this may be what you need. The first step, think about this, the first step in solving almost any human dilemma out there is humility. A broken and contrite heart. If you have a broken and contrite heart, God can work in your life to solve almost anything. Is that what you need today?